Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Women With Books. I'm your host, author, Lindsay Emery. This month has been a bit crazy, you guys, so um, thank you, thank you, thank you for all your patience and um, sticking with me through um, kind of some interesting episodes, and this is another one that's not our usual, but I would only bring it to you if um, I... If I, I wouldn't bring it to you if I didn't think you would enjoy it. Um, but in the midst of all the uh, release month craziness, please make sure that you are signed up for the Women With Books newsletter mailing list. Not only will I put all the links to all the episodes straight in the email, so you can listen uh, at your desktop at work if you need be, or forward to a non-podcast listening friend, uh, I will also include extra content that I think you'll enjoy. So, um, you know, I know that maybe my schedule's a little off or I'm not doing my normal things this month because I'm trying to, you know, let a book out in the world and do all the publicity and marketing and traveling that goes along with that. So um, just make me feel better and sign up for the newsletter. There's a link to that in the show notes. And then I'll know that we are still communicating somehow. This sept- uh, Speaking of traveling... This September, October 27th, uh, did I say September? Oh my gosh, you guys. This Saturday, October 27th, I will be in Austin at, I hope, I hope I'm supposed to be in Austin. (laughs) Like I said, it's been a hectic month, but no, I'm pretty sure I will be in Austin at the Texas Book Festival moderating a panel with romance authors Kathy Maxwell, Priscilla Oliveras, Julia London, and Sydney Rax. And I am so excited to give them a little bit of the Women With Books podcast treatment. I'm developing... Um, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. I've only like half done it. So I hope this works out. I'm developing a special uh, version of the lightning round. And if we have enough time, we'll do that. So if you are in the Austin area, consider a Saturday at the Texas Book Festival. I already checked. There is no home University of Texas football game. So downtown will be, you know, virtually deserted. You can come on down and, uh, join my session as well as so many others. If you are a book fan, this is where you need to be in Texas this weekend. And as I keep saying, I had a book come out two weeks ago, The Royal Runaway, and people are still talking about it, so I will keep talking about it too, and I'll make sure you get the scoop in the newsletter. I've been on several podcasts already, and I have several coming up that are not mine. So if you are interested in those, um, I'll probably be publicizing them on my social media, but I will also be putting them in my newsletter. I think we see the trend here. The past two episodes, I have been interviewed, I have given the reins of the podcast over, and I have been interviewed by my good friend, writer and entrepreneur, Laura Von Holt. I mentioned in those podcasts that she had her own podcast. It's called The Mermaid Podcast, and she is doing some really fun things over there and becoming quite the mermaid influencer. 
um, which I really enjoy watching. Laura very generously, graciously shared this week's episode with us. It is her interview with the author of the book. The book is called The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, and this is her interview with the author Imogen Hermes Gower. So I want to talk to you because I actually, we had another podcast interview with Sarah Peverly, who's a mermaid historian. Oh, yeah. Yes. And yeah. she had mentioned your book. And so then I was like, well, obviously I have to have you on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read your book. It's, it's beautiful. It's, I mean, I, I want like, as a writer, I just was like soaking up your language. First of all, was just, I oh, mean, tremendous. Um, so, you know, if, if it wasn't about mermaids, I would still be totally into mm-hmm. it. Um, but so, as you said, it's set in 1780s London, and mm-hmm. it follows um, a merchant, correct? That, yes, right? that's yeah, he's a correct. merchant. And he, I'm just going to give a broad stroke of like the basic premise so that they have it. So he's a merchant who has a ship and a captain who's supposed to go sell his, sell his cargo and bring it back, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, right. that's right. And then, and my, and then, in the the book takes a wild turn because the captain shows up and he has sold the boat has no cargo, and spent all the money on procuring a mermaid. Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) I always have this fear as soon as I start to interview someone that I will lose all the facts that I know. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, this is, you already have me hooked with this premise of all, like, who wants, you know, I'm just only imagining, like, you know, my entire business is based around procuring goods to sell in London, and my captain, Mm. who doesn't even own the boat, sells my boat and brings me back a mermaid. Um, Like, we've already got something interesting going there. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about the mermaid he brings back, and also, I believe, is based a little bit in some history. So if you could just tell us about that, that'd be awesome. Um, so I guess the mermaid at the beginning of the book, this mermaid that Mr. Hancock receives in London is definitely not an aerial type mermaid. <laughs> yeah, no. It is like, <laughs> it's this really grotesque little creature. Mm-hmm. It's mummified, it's dead. It's yep. just like stuffed and mounted. Um, and it's kind of baby-sized and wizened and dried out. Um, and it's come all the way from Japan, and this is a kind of curiosity that they were making there, and I would imagine by that point in cottage industries elsewhere in the world as well, and they're quite often made from a monkey's body stitched onto a fish's tail. Yum. So they're kind of, mmm, yeah. <laughs> <sexy. Yeah. laughs> um, But, like, I think, I, I guess the Japanese were making them, I don't know if your listeners are at all familiar, there's a Japanese um, kind of water thing that's called a nino and I think this is what they were seeking to represent um and that doesn't really exist in European culture but when Dutch sailors were allowed into Japan they would see these effigies and think oh my god it's a mermaid um and bring them back so these kind of little fake grotesque mermaids were being brought back into Europe I think from the 17th century, definitely in the 18th, they were really popular and they excited people. They were being exhibited um, in European cities by that point. Um, And they make their way into loads of private collections as well. Like, I doubt it's, I I don't know how many there are in America, but in the UK, any kind of tiny, weird regional museum seems to have a mermaid. Oh, wow. You kind of fossick them out of the archives all over the place. 
Um, so that was that was my inspiration for the beginning of this novel was looking at one of these mermaids. Um, so pe- people would the collect museum. these and and be like, yeah. this, like, oh, look at me! I'm I'm either so wealthy or so cool that I have, or both that yeah, I have this I mermaid I can display. Wow. Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think like it was. I suppose it's tricky because like you look back now and you think, why were you sucked in by this? But right. that's kind of, you know, people are bringing back. Say, this is after Captain Cook brings back a kangaroo, which no one has seen the like of before, uh-huh. and it's not a live kangaroo. It's like he, you know, brought back. A, hot, a kangaroo hide from Australia, which he oh, then wow. got someone who'd never seen a kangaroo to, um, I think, to just inflate it. And then George <laughs> Stubbs painted a picture of what he imagined it might have looked like in the wild. Like, oh. so much stuff was coming back dead and stuffed and then being painted or engraved and those images are being passed around. But I think, actually, you kind of expect things to look a bit fake and yeah together right if if they're traveling miles and miles and over months Mm. you're not going to expect the freshest thing when it arrives back in England completely so I can kind of understand that like you bring back a mermaid that it clearly has been stitched together and has got bits of stick inside Uh it to hold Uh it up Uh and glass eyes and you might still be like yeah I reckon that's real could be real right why <laughs> sure not? why not it's dry <laughs> it looks like a dry fish and there you go yeah exactly yeah. yeah so I think those collectors are people who I think we would think of as quite credible now that like maybe they want to have all of these crazy biological specimens from all over the world and mm. therefore a mermaid kind of fits into their imagination of what might be existing out there and this also kind of sits right on the time period of like science versus mysticism. So mm-hmm. um, I think in your book and also in history, they would have lectures on it and scientists would come inspect it. And it was like, a, yeah. like in the way that they were like charting and drawing butterflies, like a mermaid and other specimens could kind of fit in there. Yeah, completely. Yeah, it was like of scientific interest, but they were yeah. quite weird. And I think in the 18th century, they did seem to cross over science and entertainment a lot you know that it's exciting if someone comes to your town and does a display of you know how the heavens work or something or you know some scientific experiment in front of you like it's a social event as well as being a refined um you know event of the mind right and in the in the book, one of when he realized when Mr. Hancock realizes he has this mermaid and he has to make money off of it um I, I, it's kind of this hilarious like moment of capitalism where the captain is like, "You don't understand. I've brought you a fortune." <laughs> you know? So he displays it in a coffee house and is hoping that he'll make uh, money, you know, to, to to earn back his investment. And also, he has a, a niece that he's got to provide a dower for. Um, and so, and I, I, there's like a really funny moment in the book where I'm not spoiling anything. I don't think this is like in the very beginning, but where he I'll starts to display. He, yeah, tell me. <laughs> I'm gonna try to keep away <laughs> from like this is still the premise world. I think, um, but there's this hilarious yeah. moment where like he's got it in a coffee house and it's in a room and and he's hoping people will come pay for it. And this this mother brings her child, thinking 
um, it's going to be something like beautiful, you know, like in <laughs> stories. And they basically run screaming from the coffee house, like you've, <laughs> you've like damaged and traumatized my child. Yeah, um, you've ruined a child. Yeah. Well, I kind of drew that from um, when I was working at the British Museum okay. and we had this horrible mermaid specimen there. We always used to send people to look at it, like, you know, <laughs> send people with their kids to have a look at this mermaid. Because it is like a bit, I think if you're five, yeah. It's a bit of a groundbreaking moment to yeah. be like, I thought I was coming to see a lovely mermaid, and yeah. what is this? Right. Um, yeah, I, I think that's my editor, actually, my UK editor, um, took her kid to see it. Oh. Um, and she said that he just wouldn't stop talking about it, that he was obviously just weirdly fixated by it and yeah. didn't say anything at the time, but obviously it's now haunting his dreams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I think is a cool thing for something to do. It's important, you know. Oh, definitely. To be in well, some way moved by it. And, and it sounds like, I mean, just looking at, I've seen some pictures online um, of that type of specimen. And I'd love to, eventually I'm going to ask you a lot more about the British Museum. But what I thought was also funny was that moment of horror turns into like the best marketing he could have ever had. Yeah, um, Because definitely. it's so grotesque. Um, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, I think if you're not going to, because I, if, I think maybe that's the genius of that kind of mermaid, mm -hmm. that you are not going to, if you were going to do a mock-up of mm -hmm. a sexy lady mermaid, mm -hmm. you would just fail. Like, it's hard to create that kind of atmosphere to, yeah. to fake something that is desirable and attractive, whereas actually you can fake something that's frightening, and, there, and then it has this other power. Then people respond viscerally to it, if, yeah. so it makes it feel real. I think maybe that was the strength of those little grotesque creatures that they frighten people right it almost defied your imagination because in reality it yeah. was nothing at all like what you would hope to see and then it became Completely. even more fascinating yeah um, um that is that is so cool um so i wanted to hear a little bit so so this this particular mermaid that is in the book and this story of how mr hancock came to have it is that particular instance based on a real story with where someone actually lost their ship and was was replaced by a mermaid is that actually yes, yes. Okay. it was okay. i think that i so i'm going back a bit now but when i started thinking how would a man get a mermaid like this mm -hmm. and I understood it was from Japan I kind of put the pieces together and thought so it would have to be brought back as cargo or it would have you know it would have to be brought back by a trading vessel or something but then I found after I kind of pieced that much together um I found that there is a really good account from 1822, I think, of a mermaid that was exhibited. It was exhibited at the Turf Coffee House in London. Um, and it's a kind of, I think for mermaid buffs, it's like, it's quite a famous one. There are pictures of it and things. Um, and that was, that was acquired in exactly the way that I've ended up uh acquiring for the book that a sea captain saw this mermaid decided oh my god that's definitely the thing that we need to have and Obviously. ended up selling the whole ship and like passing up the cargo in order to bring back this mermaid instead so that all happened I mean um, I really understand and, the impulse but it's also like so I just think of my entire livelihood having been oh given up oh my god yeah exactly <laughs> like the, that's very stressful yeah like that's <laughs> Yeah, I guess because you are, when someone's, uh, you know, 
the other side of the globe, you are really trusting them to make a choice mm-hmm. in, in your best interest. Especially, I was really interested that in this period, that there, there isn't really a dividing line between your personal and your business life. Like, mm-hmm. if you are bankrupt in business, you're bankrupt personally as well. Like, you won't have anywhere to live and probably your family and friends have put in on that voyage and they're going to lose all their money. Like it has incredibly like intimate consequences to lose your fortune and to, for someone to make a choice like that is kind of crazy. And that's kind of Um, a theme throughout the whole book too, is how much the personal and the professional are tied up together mm -hmm. and how like every each person's fortune depends on both of those things and the fortune of their friends is also their own mm-hmm. fortune um and so which i think is a good way to introduce the other primary character which is the eventual miss oh wait, i'm gonna give that away well mrs neil <laughs> is a is a do what you say courtesan what do we call her yeah, yeah okay a courtesan. okay yeah. so she's she so and so she's a fascinating character because she's a courtesan who's f- gone freelance at the beginning of the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to she was, she had a keeper, she had or like a, a patron, I guess, who, who paid for her mm-hmm. bills and, ke- and kept her. And then um, he passes away and she's gone freelance and is determined to be the toast of the town. Um, and I was very interested in some of the early scenes with her because she's very beautiful. Um, you know, she's has been celebrated in London and aims to be just as vivacious. Um, and she is affiliated somewhat with an old house that she used to be a part of, mm. um, a brothel. But they but they call it oh they call it a nunnery, which I I just loved, yes. and I'm I'm sure that's historically it. accurate as well. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> cool. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think all the 18th century brothels were some of the most fun research I've ever done in my life. I awesome. mean, it was good. So is that, was, I mean, I'm guessing that was like purposely kind of cheeky, um, but also a way to kind of escape any sort of laws or to like yeah, keep it under the I'm, radar. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess they were. Uh, no, it was it was definitely more cheeky. There was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment at the time, which I think probably played into oh, it. But it it's okay. funny to to send up, you know, Catholic institutions if mm-hmm. you yes. are yes. Uh, living in England during this period. Yes. Um, but I think it was what the French also used to call their high-class brothels. So oh, okay. there was one woman who went to Paris in the 1750s with the express intention of studying their brothels and working out how they did it and how she could take all their secrets and set one up in London. Oh. Um, so, And she was the first woman, I think, who called herself an abbess um, okay. and her establishment a nunnery, and I think she lifted that from the French. Um, so, yeah, during the second half of the 18th century, these nunneries are suddenly springing up in really exclusive parts of London kind of the places where you have gentlemen's clubs and that kind of thing, rather than like in the seedy Covent Garden in horrible garrets. It's suddenly like the brothel becomes a place where you want to hang out and you expect maybe to see your friends there and you're going to be partying and the girls, I think there's a lot more of an an expectation that the girls will be educated, Mm -hmm. be able to have conversations and like be playmates, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and also that they will be kind of vetted and they'll be disease-free and it's kind of a much less 
risky, I guess, way of spending your time than in you know, my grotty. Yeah. So it's um, a really different model from what has come before. There's a show that's in the U.S. currently. I don't know if it's in the U.K., but it's called Harlots, which is kind of about oh, two, yes. two yes. dueling bods. Yes. I think it's more 17... 40s or 70s it's a little earlier than your book um yeah yeah, but it's also it's fascinating to see the culture of um the brothels there um and I was imagining for anybody who's like I don't know about this if you watch Harlots you'll like this book so I'm just putting it up yeah so actually I think Harlots and I use quite a lot of the same source material there is a particular historian called Hallie Rubenhold um who she published or she she spent a lot of time working on basically in the 18th century from the late 1750s all the way through the 1790s mm-hmm. there was this publication called Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies um, and it's it's like a tripadvisor for prostitutes okay great it's like <laughs> there's like an entry for each one saying like what she's good at what whether you should stay clear of her some of them are like whoa she's got the clap don't go here yeah um, and some of them are like if you like X activity, come and see her. Um, and they kind of give you these little glimpses into the lives of these women. So Holly Rubenhold did loads of research in that area. And I I think Covent Garden ladies is the thing that first drew me to 18th century kind of world of sex work. Um, but Harlots also draws on lots of her research. And I think actually Charlotte Hayes, the main, one of the main characters in Harlots, Mm-hmm. She actually ended up being the model for my Mrs. Chapel. Oh, so in okay. her old age, when she was much older, she mm-hmm. set up her own nunnery and she became an incredibly celebrated hostess. So when okay. Captain Cook brought back all of this stuff from Tahiti, she acquired it and exhibited it in her brothel. Um, wow. So I kind of borrowed from that the idea that if a mermaid was brought back to London, it would, you know, there would be a madam who would want to get her hands on it so she could exclusively exhibit it in her own brothel. Obviously, because then it's a draw into, it shows her as being like, you know, procuress, kind of like a high high class enough to have a cool artifact, but also it's a marketing draw to meet her other ladies. Um, Yeah, I I think it also establishes her as kind of um, respectable as well. So it's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that like your high class, above board hostesses would also be doing so you know like the duchess of wherever Mm -hmm. she's going to want that mermaid too so she can exhibit it in her house like it it makes you a rival to them and have people coming to your house and not hers well and i what i love about some of the 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 use of having a a character who's a courtesan and, and being within this world of the brothel um and the other um, courtesans is that we're playing here with the idea of mermaids but also sirens so mm. we've got this like wizened dried out kind of grotesque artifact um displayed alongside like alluring women you know mm. who could, like and i and i was thinking a lot about the idea of mermaids and sirens and doom um and like the idea that his boat is, you know, sacrificed to get a mermaid. Um, there's these high class courtesans who are, you know, trying to obviously get, make a living, but also avoid, you know, disease, death, and destruction. Um, mm. And and also that I was talking to Sarah Peverly about this, but I've talked about it before that the idea that 
mermaids in broader culture can be a reflection of attitudes about women. So, I and I, yeah. I think that's a direct analogy with, uh, with a courtesan is that like the men are going there because they want to be part of like a glittering, beautiful world, but it can also be the source of financial ruin of disease, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, their reputation, whatever. Um, so I, I loved having this, um, artifact placed along like very alluring women as well. It seems to be like the obvious place for her to go. (laughs) Yeah. I think also like the, um, uh, a kind of cognitive dissonance between what you think a mermaid should be and what it actually is mm-hmm. and what you think a woman should be and maybe what she actually is. That yeah. I think a mermaid is either, uh, you know, this kind of mm, sexual fantasy thing that is kind of acquirable for men and is something that is erotically powerful. Mm-hmm. And But I think that it's something that is very ownable and on the other hand, the mermaid as something, as a threat, as being, you know, this independent, essentially, woman out there swimming around, luring you to your death or taking your husband away from you or killing your baby in his cradle. Like, yeah. that's kind of, um, what's the word? It's kind of subversive woman. It's the kind of woman that you want to cast out. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of liked that thought in terms of the courtesans. But I think someone like Angelica Neal, Mm-hmm. is very happy to kind of parade as that kind of glittering available pretty kind of mermaid but I it's also threatening socially a threatening thing yes exactly like mean for any pearl clutchers it could be the threat of the family of morality mm-hmm. um but and you know definitely in her dealings with men there's uh, like this idea that uh you know perhaps she wants to be married or at least like formally kept and like mm-hmm. does that take away this rich man from his other duties um and and all of that so yeah i think it's really interesting to watch the reactions to a uh, mermaid and uh, the also reactions to um the social reactions to these women and when how where they both kind of navigate ha 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 the waters of london society i just made that up um i want it so then I, i'm not gonna give this away but there we do in this book get a third like a third mermaid voice and there's some chapters um mm. told from her point of view and they're like i wish someone would set them to music they're so they're so lyrical um that's a for the audiobook, I think you should tell them. <laughs> these could be sung. And and we with this the introduction of us of this of this other mermaid voice that we get, um, we get more of that kind of fantastical element. Um, it's not the mm. real life grotesque thing, and it's, uh, we step more into magical realism. Um, and so I wanted to talk just a little bit about there. The, as the book goes on and on, the effect that the original mermaid, that you know, the sirens and the courtesans have, and then the the effect that this um, other mermaid voice has on the people and on the world of the book um, changes. And I and I wanted to ask you a little bit about because there seems to be a theme of like the people in the book really aspire to more wealth. They aspire to you know more glory and to fame and to be you know as dazzling or celebrated as this mermaid artifact. Um, and then it's countered by, you know, the threat of, of doom again, like financial ruin or, um, you know, 
being thrown out or, or like not having any of your family talk to you because you're displaying a mermaid or something. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I wanted to know just what were your thoughts on like, on building that world and, and playing with, with that. And like, was, was there something broader that you were trying to say about mermaids or about, um, greed or, or anything or like, you know, what was in the back of your mind as you were constructing the arc of this? I think so from my point of view I really tried with the novel to not I mean there are fan, definitely fantastical elements to it and superstitious elements as well but I I was I was really trying to not include anything that my characters in their period wouldn't believe to be true um that I mean I I don't really like one of those books where it's like oh it's all a metaphor or yeah okay. you know th- this yeah. thing this is this is not real I think yeah. that for the characters the effect of this second mermaid is extremely real mm-hmm. um and they are able to put it down to it being the effect of this mermaid because that's how they construct their world mm-hmm. and I don't I don't want to cond- condescend to that mm-hmm. um I had been very interested for a long time in this idea, um, which I think I first heard of as an anthropology student, that when there have been huge social shakeups, mm-hmm. like a regime change or suddenly getting the, you know, an incredibly lucrative career when you've grown up in poverty or anything like this, it, you know, it can be a very positive change, but if your social status changes, Apparently, a lot of people respond to that with depression or even suicide, mm-hmm. that they can't handle this new situation that they're in. And I was kind of interested in that from the point of view of the late 18th century, where people are so able to cross class barriers that it's a very dynamic society. The beginning of the Industrial Revolution, trade is making a huge difference to people's fortunes and where they can go and who they can become. That if you've always believed that you are born into a certain status and there's nothing you can do to help yourself, and then the Enlightenment comes along and tells you, hey, do you know what? You can do whatever you like. You can get insurance and you're not flying in the face of God, or you can make a fortune and end up marrying an old daughter or something. There's nothing to stop you from doing this. Nothing is preordained. But actually, I think that is probably quite emotionally shattering. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was quite interested in that in terms of constructing this second mermaid. Um, I think it, I think it vocalises a lot of the sense of grief and loss that maybe the characters feel but are not really able to articulate. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also kind of true to how I imagined a mermaid might. Be, that when I was initially looking at this tiny fake mermaid mm-hmm. I thought this was kind of the key to my story was like what if a man ordered one of these for his collection and what he got instead was something was a real mermaid was this huge oh, nebulous yeah. feeling of of being out at sea of being kind of like lost and tiny and rudderless and yeah. overpowered by the world that to me felt like if a mermaid turned up in your life, that's how you would feel. Right. And so that I think was the core for me of making that mermaid exist. But I also, um, it sounds really crazy. Uh, I had been in the year before I wrote this book, I had been really fascinated by Blackfish, the documentary. Mm-hmm. 
about um, SeaWorld. It's about an orca in SeaWorld who has been, shall we say, implicated oh. in the death of, I think, three people. Um, oh. And there's a whole... It, it was a really kind of earth-shattering documentary about, you know, how SeaWorld treats its animals. Should we be capturing orcas and keeping them in captivity? But there was a section about how they... In the wild, they live in pods. They, the mothers keep their calves with them all the way through their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're out swimming at the sea, calling to each other. They can call to each other long range, and they're constantly communicating, um, even if they're hundreds of miles away from each other. Um, and there was a story in the documentary about this mother had her calf taken away from her to be taken to another site for breeding or something like that. It should be sold. Um, and the mother kind of went into the corner of the pool and the tra- and she was making these weird noises and the trainers were watching her and wondering what, what it is that she's doing. And they realised she's trying to use her long-distance calls to call out to her baby to, you know, oh. to, to communicate with it across uh-huh. the water. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that was... I, I tried then to kind of try and write from the point of view of an orca, which was very bad, didn't work. Um, <laughs> but that kind of like, you know, group mentality right. and this huge empathy for the people in your group and the idea that you, your consciousness, I guess, expands over huge areas of space because you're, yeah. you can kind of scope out in your mind. Like that, that kind of massive sadness and trappedness of the idea of calling out and your voice just bouncing back you and you have Mm. nothing to communicate with Mm. that was another key to my trying to write what this mermaid would be like those are some of my favorite images of the mermaid realizing that like she there's the moment where her voice goes out and comes back to her in a different way um Mm. and the like the feeling of the ocean and being contained um was really cool um and that that's something that i thought was unique about your your depiction of a mermaid was i i think so so many times the story is like about the human interaction and it's like, Oh, is there a love story or is it a, a you know, a doom. Mm. And this was told with a lot of empathy for the free spirit of a mermaid and, mm. and what it's like, what it's like for um, something free and fantastical and kind of nebulous and magical to, for, to, for someone to try to own it. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 That, I think that was important. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was it, was. it was lovely to read and also lovely to think about. Um, and I and also the idea that because um, we have the you know the practical realistic artifact where it's like a real dried up mermaid, and then we have the idea of the mermaid um, mm. and and the tension between those and what's you know what's different um, between those two, um, and. And that was just, this is not a dynamic that we see often. I, I think sometimes, especially in books, it's like, she lives under the sea in a castle, you know, and um, like, or she's under the crab. Um, and I, and I, I write mermaid romances. So they're very, um, like, I don't know, tact, I wasn't say tactile, but like physical, like it's like a, a you know, a person that has a fish tail. Um, but I loved kind of just blowing that out of, oh my God, I'm going to do it again. Blow it out of the water. I don't know. I can't help it. Blow that out of the water and really expand the idea of what a mermaid might be. Um, and I wanted to ask you, 
um, you know, there seems to be more, I mean, I was talking to Sarah Peverly about how like mermaids have never really left us. They're always in different cultures and time periods and they manifest in different ways. Um, but I wanted to ask you because you chose to write about a mermaid. Um, obviously you have, you know, practical um, experience with one at the British Museum, but what, like, what, for you, what, what do you think, what was like the idea of the mermaid that also like drew you in? And do you have any thoughts on like why, in this moment in time, we are still interested in them, or maybe you have more thoughts about why they were interested in them in the 1780s. Um, I think we're still interested in them, I guess because there's still so much possibility in them. Like, mm-hmm. I I have read so many mermaid novels this mm-hmm. year, and loads of them that have been published this year, mm-hmm. and no two are the same at okay. all. Like, yep. you know, so the women have my kind of generation who I guess grew up with like the little mermaid and splash mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And yet the way that we've all interpreted and enacted mermaids are so different. I think like it does, mm-hmm. I think it definitely gives the space to talk about women. How do we think about women? What are they capable of? Mm-hmm. What are they meant to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's quite a feminist thing as well. Um, I think also like there's that kind of, uh, can I say like liminality like neither one thing nor the other so therefore like you know the normal rules don't apply so Mm -hmm. it's fun in fiction to to have that little element of fantasy however you then play with it you know however Mm -hmm. realistically you portray it it's nice to have this get out from the normal rules of how things should be Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah I think that I was always interested in mermaids as a child my first my first thing I ever sent to a publisher I was about eight and Uh it was a story about a mermaid (laughs) and I got a really nice I got a lovely rejection letter (laughs) which my mum lovingly kept for me it's your first rejection Uh, you have to start somewhere yeah I really need to find it I need to find what poor publisher's assistant I got like a small child. I feel like story. I feel like you should send it back to them and be like, "I've now been shortlisted for several prizes, so you might want to yeah, rethink exactly. your rejection." Yeah, yeah, you're lost. <laughs> yeah, you're lost. Yeah, it can be on one of those lists of like these published turned down these great authors' books. Definitely did not need to publish that book. They made the right choice. Um, but I think I have definitely always been interested in mermaids. Um, I think because of that, like. I loved to swim when I was a kid I liked to go to the sea I think what I was interested in was that kind of like freedom Mm -hmm. and power rather than kind of pretty mermaids that I I loved the idea that maybe there are people out there and they can go wherever they want to go and they're just swimming around in the ocean like Mm -hmm. that that sounded exciting to me yeah Oh, definitely. I think also there's something um, you just made me think of that I take for granted the belief in mermaids or the belief in the possibility of mermaids because I talk about it so much. But mm. um, we, but to be able to write this book and to be able to think about these stories, I, I just assume a belief in them. But it is it is something for people who don't spend all day thinking about this to, you know, believe in mermaids or believe in the possibility. And I'm thinking about the people who um, get to see this artifact that they come from, um, I mean, it's very like colonial British empire, but they come from a world where they, um, the things are 
slightly rigid in structure, you know, maybe are expanding, but there aren't um, these wonders of the world that they know are now out there. And Mm. to have one brought back and displayed before them, um, I'm just thinking it has the, you know, the same resonance as like, if, you know, faith or religion or, you know, seeing like Mm. miracles made real. Um, And, and what just what that would be like for an average layperson now, but also back then when there were so many mysteries of the world unexplained, like you know. Yeah, um, that's the thing. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. These people thought they were being scientific, and mm-hmm. like I guess if you have spent all of your life, you know, all of mm-hmm. your all your whole cultural memory and tradition mm-hmm. is full of stories about mermaids. Mm-hmm. Like you've never seen a mermaid, but you know what what it looks like. Yeah. You, and you know the kind of things that it does, like. Mm-hmm kind of comfortable with that so I can really understand why firstly they get brought you know to London or wherever and people just believe in them but also the fact people kind of wanted them to exist yeah like that's when you go out into the unknown you kind of want to find something recognizable I I think maybe it's the same as I don't know if aliens have kind of taken that spot now you know yeah a little bit for us is space and right. you want there to be something kind of humanoid out there. Mm-hmm. Whereas back then, like the huge, unexplored, dangerous void is just the ocean. And you maybe you want, you know, you, you want to recognize something in it. You want like your expectations of how the world is to be correct. Otherwise, it's really frightening. You know, mm-hmm. you, you want your little schema of what's here in the world to be safe. Right. And in that in that time period where they're being displayed, it's not too far removed from a time when like, the world was flat and there are sea monsters yeah. at the border of the world. Um, and so the, the concept of what is out there is so much scarier um, than what we know yeah. now. Yeah. Completely. And you're yeah. really working blind as well. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, we can just Google stuff and yeah. look at a range of sources on does a mermaid exist? Probably not. But yeah. like they, you know, they, they can't Google what one looks like. They, you know, are never going to go to Australia themselves or wherever in the world and right. see whether these creatures exist. It's so much on faith and trying to piece together these tiny little scraps of what you, you know, what you're able to find on voyages that take 18 months with, you know, in dangerous conditions with people yeah. who just constantly die. Like, you, it's so hard to conduct research under those kind of circumstances that yeah. it's everything that gets brought back is amazing and impressive yeah I, I i think it's it's really easy to just kind of laugh at them as having been duped but i think in terms of how they understood the world it totally made sense and i i like that i like thinking about this world where there's still so much mystery you're still kind of groping to work out just the basics of things right I mean, I'm, I love that they that they believed it because, I mean, we're just as culpable these days. I mean, there's so many internet memes that people fall for. It's not like oh, we, we yeah. have more knowledge, but we're not any smarter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Definitely not. No, so, we want to see so, things that agree yeah. with how we think the world is. Right. So it's not, you know, like we can be all like, I would never have believed that that monkey was a mermaid. No, we but have like, notes now. We, we still have, don't have, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So we can't really think that we're so evolved. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. Um, I wanted to ask you, was there anything else in your research about mermaids that you thought was relevant to the book or would just be interesting? Hmm. There were loads of um, stories about mermaids kind of from the coast of England that I really enjoyed, but kind of didn't really have a place in the book or, you know, 
it was a fat book already. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I really loved all these kind of little vignettes of what mermaids are and do. Like there was one of like this idea that like under the water is a kind of weird mirror world where everyone does the same stuff as we do up here, except that it's under the water. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's like a story about there's a fisherman one day, he reels, you know, casts his net or something and accidentally hauls up, I think like a mermaid lady who's like got a cooking pot and she's just busy doing her stuff. Like I, I loved all yeah. these kind of, and so he's like, oh, sorry about that and throws her back. I, I loved all these kind of little mundane stories of what are the mermaids doing down there, probably cooking dinner. Right, don't know. <laughs> right. <sure. laughs> I did, I did like that. And these weird, yeah, just like so um, gothic stories about what they're up to or like that you can spot a mermaid on land by the fact that she's just like got a really weird sense of humour. Like she just, she seems to like laugh at the fatuousness oh, of life. I've forgotten. I've heard some of those too, and I hadn't thought about them in a long time. That's that's hilarious. I mean, just I don't, I'm just thinking of for transference onto women, like you know, somebody's telling like ripping jokes, and you're like, definitely a mermaid. Like, yeah, every, every every comic Something is a mermaid. I know, I know. It's, it, it can't be helped. It can't yeah. be helped. <laughs> we need a bingo or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um. So. Before we wrap up, because I mean, I would talk to you for eight, I, I say that in every I would talk to you for eighteen more hours. Um, <laughs> um, you mentioned that you've been reading other mermaid books, and I thought maybe we should just pay it forward. So, if there's anything that you've mm. read recently or in the past that you that you would recommend, I'm sure we would love to hear it. Oh my gosh, don't know if you have read The Gloaming yet by Kirsty mm. Logan. Oh, I that just is. heard of it. No, and somebody else read. Okay, I'm so glad you said that because I forgot about it. Okay. Yeah, it's really, really super. I, that is, and I just, oh, I just had a little glut of them actually. So I read, okay. I read the gloaming quite a few months ago because she and I actually have the same editor. Mum okay. were like, oh my god, are we both writing a mermaid book? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's uh, Louise O'Neill, the surface breaks. That's really interesting. Surface breaks. It's quite a okay. great retelling of the Little Mermaid, Hans Christian Christian Andersen's okay. version of the Little Mermaid. Um, but it's it takes uh, an explicitly feminist perspective, I suppose. But, um, it's very, it's really, it's really interesting. I would say, like, it really kicks off once she gets up on land. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like I loved it. Um, and the Pisces by is Melissa Broder, yes. isn't it? Like, yes, exactly. Oh my mm-hmm. god, it's filthy. Great, I, really enjoyed it. <laughs> I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's a completely different. But reading again of, you know, mermaids and mermaids in fiction, what they can do. But, oh, my God, I I really enjoyed it. I thought, like, that's a class contemporary novel and it has a mermaid in it. This isn't mermaid related, but just on the note of like courtesans and your hist- and your I mean, we could talk mm. forever about your research, but I know you you know you have s- studied it and you've worked at um, museums. But the details that you gave about like a courtesan's life and how they deal with um, their business, I was like, this is great. <laughs> I was like, I'm I love I'm a, that. Yeah, I'm also a person in history of the class who was like maybe talking about you know wars and political movements. I'd be like, great, how they use the bathroom and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. I just really enjoyed doing all that research none of it was a chore at all it was like oh my god it was amazing it's incredible how much you can find out as well like I think in the 18th century they they loved a a good 
anecdote or you know a funny story something colorful but yeah that there's like the partisan stuff is just like on a whole other level it's oh no it's, brilliant. So, it's so good um so okay so we have the gloaming surface breaks and the pisces mm-hmm. is there anything else um those are my top three great I think, I think that's wonderful personally um all right well is there anything else that you want people to know besides buy the book <laughs> oh yes yeah. please um <laughs> yeah it's out in september don't let it you know it's september september 11th in the in september 11th, the, US, yeah. the u.s and this this will be you're listening to this right now people the day before it comes out all right Ooh. So, you can still pre-order <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's still time or you know Go to your local independent bookshop. Yes, local independent bookshop. Great. And yeah. if you can't buy it, ask your library to buy it because that's good. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah, that would be great. That's I don't lovely. think people know that you can request things from the library. Like they will. Go no, buy them I know. I didn't even really yeah. until a few years ago. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is incredible. It's such a good thing. Yeah. Um. So I'm not gonna ask you. Uh, I don't want to ask that question of like, how's the writing going? Um, but I did want to know if you had anything else that you were working on that you're excited about that you can talk about um, or anything coming up in the future so that, you know, we can keep keep our eye on you. Uh, oh, only the novel at the moment. I've got, I've been enjoying, yeah, no, sorry. That's a really bad that's answer. Okay. But like, I'm just, I'm now in the process of switching on my out of office. Uh-huh. And being like, I'm writing a novel, leave me alone. Great, um, great. So yeah, hopefully that will happen. But I believe it won't you. be another mermaid. But That's okay. Oh, yeah, thanks. That's that makes okay. one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I totally believe I'll you. I'll get there, we'll get there. <laughs> you can believe in a mermaid, you can believe in yourself. <laughs> you know what? I, that's, I might get a tattoo of that. That's yeah. lovely. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Once again, thank you to Laura Von Holt at The Mermaid Podcast for sharing that terrific interview with us. I am so excited to read The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock very soon. It sounds like something that is so creative and so up my alley. So thank you for joining us on this special edition of Women With Books today. I'll put links to The Mermaid Podcast and the books discussed in the show notes. Please remember to leave a review for Women With Books five stars if you love books. And this is Lindsay Emery telling you to keep reading.